What's your name? Amy. Oh, Amy? And you. Who are you? I'm the guy to save you from all this awesomeness. Man of my dreams. This man of mine may truly kill me. My wife disappeared three days ago. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Without a body, their only hope is a confession. You've seen this girl around here. She wanted a gun. I know you. I saw you at the volunteer center. This is the script. We're doing Gone Girl, David Fincher, Gillian Flynn. I'm here with uh, script doctors Talia Safdar and Chris Theokis. Welcome, guys. Howdy. Thank you. As usual, we're doing the beat sheet edition of the script, right? Which is um, you know where we use Blake Snyder's 15 beats to break down the three-act structure of uh, the movie. Tonight's movie is Gone Girl. Um, uh, Blake Snyder's uh, beat sheet is a 15 bite sized uh, beat sheet outline that you uh, that you can use to break down three act structure of films. Um, some of the beats may fit, some of them may not. Um, we'll see. We'll see how it is. Um, but for tonight's film, we've got Gone Girl, directed by David Fincher, screenplay by Gillian Flynn, based on her book. Starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. Um, who else is in it? Uh, I really like Tyler. Tyler Perry. Yeah, he's the first person who jumps out of you. I just, oh my gosh, he wasn't that well cast as a lawyer. That just every time I see Tyler Perry, it's like, where's his <laughs> grandma suit? You know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how am I supposed to take him seriously as a lawyer? I had another problem with that that action movie he tried to be in. Too. Oh, he was in the uh, the last Alex Cross movie. Yeah, right, right. I, I like I have trouble taking him seriously as Alex Cross because he's supposed to be a grandma. Um, so, <laughs> what else? Okay, so um, oh, I think another I, I think another issue is that uh, Alex Cross was played by Morgan Freeman before, and I personally I'm used to Morgan Freeman as Alex Cross. Yeah, so. that was a much better. Um, more cerebral version. They try to make him action. Anyway, Kim Dickens is uh, Detective Boney in this. Kim Dickens is an awesome actress. I love her from Deadwood. Um, she was great in this. Um, we had uh, Carrie Coon, who uh, plays uh, Margot Dunn, who's Nick's sister. Uh, Carrie Coon is on The Leftovers. She's, she's one of the best actors on The Leftovers, so I was really happy to see her in this. In fact, she was almost unrecognizable. Have either of you guys watched The Leftovers? I have not seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I did one episode. Didn't uh, make it to episode two. Did, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the faithful. For some reason, I got all the way through. I, I, wow. It was, it, was, uh, it was rewarding. It wasn't as big a uh, disappointment as Lost or anything. Oh, well, that's good. So you understood everything at the end. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> so, um, let's... Uh, also, of course, uh, NPH shows up. How can you forget Neil Patrick Harris? Yeah, because normally you can't forget him, but in this role, he was, you know, barely there. Like, was, I mean... Well, so we're starting... We're already getting into it. Let's just start off quickly with general thoughts on Gone Girl. Um, 
I have neither read the book nor read the script. Talia, I know, has read the book and the script and seen the movie. Chris, what have you seen? What have you read? I, I've just seen the movie. Um, that's it. You didn't do the, the Gone Girl graphic novel? No, I didn't. <laughs> no? And I'm a, little I'm a little surprised that doesn't exist. But, yeah. uh, no, I, I, I haven't. Obviously, I, I actually knew the story, essentially, before going into the movie. You did. Uh, who, who spoiled it for you? <laughs> because everybody was talking about it. If you go to the right websites, they'll, they'll spoil it. And I didn't have a problem with... I usually don't have a problem with that. I think with Gone Girl, if you haven't read the book, you should probably stay away from spoilers. Yeah, absolutely, because there's plenty of just basic plot reversal stuff that are the meat of this movie. Um, it's not the kind of movie you see twice and you're, like, getting more and more out of it, um, which is one of the problems I had with it. But hmm. um, Talia, you, did you, you, you have, you, you've seen many iterations of this story. Is that right? Yeah, so um, I have, and I have to tell you, the book was, as usual, remarkably better. But I think the um, the major issue that I had with this that there was this um, dichotomy in Nick's character in the book that doesn't exist in the movie. It's a little bit more clear cut in the movie that he didn't kill his wife, and it's pretty ambiguous in the book because in the book you have two unreliable narrators. But the way that it was structured in the movie, you didn't really get that feeling. It's almost as if you, you know, it wasn't the same narration. It was just you only had the voiceover for him in the beginning and the end, and you lost that. And that was that was a bit of a problem for me. That was, uh, so in, in the book they had, um, he had a narration as well as his wife that helped balance out um, this idea of who is telling the truth. Yes, and, you know, in his narration, you really got a, a view of him. He was a very misogynistic character. He had this weird mumble where he kept saying dumb bitch under his breath. And, he, you know, there's this huge pro issue that he was facing where he's finding himself turning into his father and trying to resist that and, and a little bit more violent in the book. And that was all sort of gone from the movie. So... Yeah, so that so, was an issue. So, so it's, well, that, that goes to one of the major um, ambitious things that this story was trying to do, was trying to really um, make it a, a, a thriller, a mystery, where you don't know who did it until the midpoint, right? Or you don't know what the truth is until the midpoint. Um, and by making t taking it from a, a dual perspective novel, dual... <laughs> perspective novel and giving it, making uh, making the, the, the husband the protagonist, we, we're automatically seeing it from his perspective, um, even, though, even though we're getting her voiceover. Um, so I'm going to keep calling him Ben or Batfleck. I don't even know what to call him. Like, I know his name is Nick's in the movie, but um, all right. So I, you know, I, um, my general take on Gone Girl was that it was, David Fincher light, you know, I really wanted more darkness, more, um, um, more misanthropy, um, you know, more of what David Fincher is known for. Um, uh, the things I liked about it, though, was something that actually, um, the major thing I liked about it was how he, Fincher creates 
um, a slightly heightened reality for this movie. It starts out very well planted in reality, um, in a regular world, but by the end of it, it's almost a dream state. You just don't believe the stuff that's going on, and not in a bad way, not in a, oh, this doesn't make sense, this would never happen way, but you almost feel this American Gothic fantasy that uh, the American news media portrays and that people sitting in their armchairs, you know, watching the news and, and reading the internet, um, they get into this kind of a dream state believing in um, narratives that may or may not be true. Um, and I think Fincher actually captured that um, in the perspective of, of this film. And it, to me, that was one of the, the, my favorite part of it. Because by the end of it, things that are happening in it that are completely not logical or not believable, but they are in this slightly like fantasy America. So we're going to run through the beat sheet um, and just start with um, opening image. Uh, does anybody have the opening image? Well, I would say it's when he's looking at, uh, when Nick is looking at Amy's head and wondering what's inside of it. Yeah. What she's thinking, essentially. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, opening image, uh, and Nick says, what are you thinking? What have we done to each other? What will we do? Right, and he wants to unspool her brains. And he would like to unspool her brains. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, the beginning of uh, the comment on marriage. Um, actually, that's an interesting thing to talk about. One script doctor on here. Um, I'm, I'm not married. I've never been married. Leokis has been married. And Talia, you're married, right? Yes. So... Do you, do you guys feel there was a bit of a meditation on the nature of, of marriage? <laughs> I mean, do I, I want to crack my spouse's head open <laughs> and spool his brain? I, mean, what I can't time tell if you're like, yes, all the time, or no, <laughs> not at all. I can't <laughs> Go ahead, Craig. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, not in the sense of, like, what are you thinking, but you're driving me crazy. Um, no, I don't know. I, I thought it was... Um, what have we done to each other? Yeah, my impression was more like uh, how I met your psychopathic mother was more of what this was about. I, because I, I, I didn't recognize anything about marriage in this, in the sense like, you know, I, I, at least in their marriage. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was more like how I met your psychopathic mother. But they're barely a present I, or, in this movie. No, no, like, like, because of course, with the ending, spoiler for the ending of this movie, they're pregnant, and it's like, if if Nick has to explain what happened, it's like, you know, I'm a bad guy, but God, your mom. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to say that that, that there, were, there was any. Well, isn't good that person. one? Of, isn't that one of the 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 tropes of marriage? Is that in the mother-in-law? <laughs> Well, you know, that's something... Well, no, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the mother-in-law. I'm talking about Amy. I mean, she's, you know, it's like if you consider what Nick did in the movie, and he's not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he, he admits it, and you're like, yeah, you're, you're a dick. Um, Amy, you know, ups the ante on what it is to be a not-nice person because of what she does to Neil Patrick Harris. Um, <clears throat> you know, this is a movie where there are maybe two good people, and... Uh, I would say Margot and the, de the detective. detective. And, um, you know, I would say that there are two good people in this entire movie, which I think is fine. 
Um, but when I look at what Nick and Amy go through and what they do to each other, um, some of it's, yeah, a little bit real. You know, some of it's realistic when he's out of his job and he's playing video games and laying around on the couch. That's certainly something that I can see happening. But, you know, obviously beyond that, how they treat each other is, it, it's a bit, it's certainly heightened for the, the thriller genre, I think. This opening image actually runs right into, like, the theme stated. Like, this could be the theme stated also. What are you thinking? What have we done to each other? What will we do? Because the closing image matches the opening image. It goes right back to the, to, um, to the wife's head and her hair. And, um, and, and isn't it, isn't it the, almost the exact same dialogue? Yeah, no, and he yeah. says the same line. So, and it means something totally different at this point. Well, right, now that we know all they've been through. And so that, to me, is the meditation on marriage, right? It's like, it's like you go through this hell, you go through insanity, and still at the end, it's like, well, I still don't know what you're thinking, I don't know what we've done, and I don't know what we will do, but somehow we're together still through all of this. And it doesn't matter that he, he, he's deciding to live with a psychopath who's, who's actually murdered people, right? So it's marriage is a bigger bond, and, you know, that, that trumps all. So I guess, is, it, is that as good a thing we have for the theme as anything? Anybody have anything else for theme stated? In the book, the theme was very different than what was in the movie. I mean, really, they were two very disturbed people. They were both very disturbed. And Nick was just as obsessed with his, um, with what people thought of him as, um, as Amy was in the book. And really one of the major reasons why he chose to stay with her in the end was because of that. And that's all sort of lost. So for me, the theme stated is not, it's not so, it's, they really deserved each other in the book. They were both equally, you know, psychopathic in the book. But in the movie, it was really that you were rooting for Nick and, and Amy was the villain. And um, it was just, there was just, it just lost a little bit in the movie. So it's hard for me to separate the two, if you know what I mean. So what were the, what were the two themes then? How was the theme, if, if, what was the theme for the book different from the movie? So in the book, in the book, the theme was sort of, it was this, it was this um, paradox that these sociopaths had to live with where they were pretending to be something to society. They accepted to love each other in the end so that they could also have society's um, acceptance. So wait, this was like American Psycho where... Yeah, it was very American Psycho. Two psychos, two psychopaths, and, and just like living together under false pretenses of being a marriage. What did Nick do anything that was as close to psychopathic as kill somebody? No, he didn't, but he was very violent. He was very abusive, emotionally abusive. I mean he would he had this dumb bitch mumble like every time she would Yeah. Say, yeah, he would definitely say, sociopathic, yeah. That's yeah. a little more yeah, and, and, and there was this huge, you know, the pull between him and his father. His father was um, a very violent man. He was very abusive towards his mother. He was very unfaithful to his mother. And Nick was sort of turning into his father. So that whole thing about him turning a corner and becoming violent, which they showed a little bit in the movie in the end when he slammed her against the wall. Barely, yeah. And um, But in the movie, it was a constant struggle that he had back and forth. So... It wasn't that, oh, you felt bad for Nick. It was that they were both really 
really freaking crazy in in the book. So it, in the film, it's a lot more like, um, uh, did he kill her or did 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 something else happen? Did somebody else take her? It's it's did it's not it's not who's crazier. It's about a straight up mystery. Did somebody else take her or did Nick take her? Because you you don't ever think maybe Nick did it. You kind of you know they start they start down that road a little bit the way in, but for the most part, um, as we as we've said already that you know. It's it's not balanced as 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 you say it's portrayed in the book. To speak to how I, I like how I chose sides in the movie with Nick as a and this is heavy quotes hero of the story like it was easy it was just like that was the only other choice. Yeah. Even though he's clearly not from the sound of it as bad as he was in the book, I I, I don't want him you know I would say going in he's not like somebody that you're going to cheer for the whole way through it's just like eh this is who I have to deal with. So he's better than Amy in the sense that he's not going to kill somebody, most likely. Um, but if I could have a better protagonist or a more, a more heroic protagonist or a better human being to root for, that'd be great. Help me out here. So, you know, in the film, I, I kind of want to read the book now just to see how bad this guy was. And I heard about the, 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 the dumb bitch line from, like, an article I was reading, and I wish they'd added that in. Yeah. Into the film. That would have been that would have been really interesting. Something just a voiceover coming out of his head every time he dealt with a woman. Oh, even if that it would was have been really interesting. Yeah, even if it was. Yeah, we talk about this in the, the collective every now and then about voice, you know, a voiceover being unacceptable to a certain degree because it's kind of a cheap way out. But I think in this case, if we're hearing his thoughts when he's dealing with a specific, you know, either a specific women or just women in general, I think that would have been interesting because I, I because I, I think. Especially somebody going in not knowing the story, it might have skewed them more towards thinking he was a killer. But you know what? Why? Why then did they decide not to do double voiceover here? Like, if you were a screenwriter and you you were adapting this book, why would you decide not to just jump back and forth between two people? What's in two people's heads? Why? Um, why this um, single voiceover? That apparently is the voice of, not of the wife, but of her diary, which turns out to be a falsely narrated diary. Well, I was going to say, typically, the, the reading of the diary thing is just kind of a trope of that visual image. I mean, you never have a picture of text on screen without, typically, without somebody reading it. And typically, no, but, the person but, but, who wrote before, it reads it. Before we know it's a diary, she's doing the voice over the whole film. For the first half, until the midpoint, before we knew it was out of the diary... You know, we, we we thought it was just her talking about their life together. Um, right. In between vignettes of the setup, of the uh, the setup. So, I I mean, Talia, what do you think about that that method of adaptation? Well, I think that there was no way to keep the story of Amy without having the diary entries because in the book, it's one chapter is a diary entry and the next chapter is Nick as the narrator. So it just goes back and forth between each chapter and there would be no way to get that um, to, to go back to the past without having the diary entries. It's the only way that we can find out what re what happened in Amy's mind, right? But I also think, you know, the book, I mean it can be argued that Amy is this like super hero feminist villainous 
lunatic, but still feminist in some way. And um, but it's and if they took away that narration from her and gave the narration to Nick also, it would kind of take the story away from her and give it to him. Unfortunately, though, that happened anyway because they gave everything to Nick and they didn't give anything to her. So he has the cat that he takes care of. He goes home to take care of his sick and dying mother. He has an empathetic twin who is basically the audience's voice, right? They see her as he, she sees him as we see her, him. And, um, and what does Amy have? Amy has nothing. She's just a lunatic who fakes pregnancies and pretends that she's been raped. And everything that was in the book with her and this constant pull that she had with her parents with living up to Amazing Amy, it was touched upon but it wasn't gone. It didn't go into the same depth that they did in the book, so you didn't understand where the psychosis came from, and you didn't really feel for her. You just thought she was nuts. I mean, they 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 show us the parents, and they show us the um, uh, is it amazing? Amy, is that the books? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, the books. and we and in the interview, pretty quickly, we just hear that everything that happened to Amazing Amy didn't actually happen to her, like. It was all of her, the things she wished for, but she never got. And so that's a little nuts. And then we also see she's an overachiever. We also see that she's, you know, got a lot of degrees and stuff, which sets her up to be, you know, maybe a sociopath, but she's actually psychopath. So, you know. Um, I was going to say, what set her up to be the sociopath-psychopath thing was the, the blood killing of Neil Patrick Harris, yeah. uh, you know, setting her husband up for, you know, uh, murder and things like that. I, I would say those are clear clues of her personality disorders. Let's get with the beats and quickly jump into the setup, okay? The setup is involved, it involves their meeting, this, like, meet cute, where um, uh, they're at a party and Ben Affleck does his uh, Ben banter, if you will, the, the, the Affleck banter sort of pick up on a girl and you know it's you know every 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 woman wants to be picked up by Ben Affleck at a party um, I know I do and uh, um, but then it's it's juxtaposed with five years later or two or three years later Nick complaining to his sister in the bar how difficult Amy is how his marriage is difficult and how he can't make her happy um, and yeah, I think the the setup is is a, a somewhat sim simpler um, it's just a guy, he runs a bar in Missouri, he's not in the best marriage ever, he, he works with his sister, or he owns the bar, his sister works behind the, cat, the bar, and the setup is just that he lives a suburban life, and there, there are no questions about it, like, this is just kind of the, you know, American dream, put that in quotes if you like, and, and then, then what leads up to the, the end of the setup the inciting incident that we'll get to in a second is, is of course, his wife is missing. But basically, you see in a couple of brushstrokes, he drives a, a Volvo SUV. He lives in the McMansion. He lives in a cul-de-sac. I think he lives in a cul-de-sac, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, nevertheless, I don't think there are sidewalks on his block. Uh, and, and he lives in flyover country. And whatever that says to you as a viewer is the setup. And I think that's it. That's all it is. That this is a guy that lives in Middle America, and he's been Affleck with Batman's body. But it, it sets up a happy marriage. It sets up a happy marriage. Okay. Well, it, it sets up a, it sets up a, a life in a marriage, but I wouldn't and necessarily sets, say. And it sets up a really charming guy, and it sets up a perfect girl. Okay. So it does. Yes, so, it sets up the perfect American couple. 
but but I would say that the, the flashback to to their suit is just um, I would say character development maybe maybe plot development. But I, I don't think I think the setup is just really simple. It's like this is a guy that lives in a suburb in America in flyover country. He he owns a bar that's in the middle of town. He's got a marriage. It doesn't sound great, but you know, hey, that's marriage sometimes. And then he gets home, and then tell he sees what happens. You, is there anything else in the setup? I mean, the only thing that I would add is that you know his marriage has deteriorated, but they actually really loved each other once. Okay, and then our inciting incident, our catalyst is um, Nick Dunn comes home, and there's a broken table, and the wife is missing. Yeah. And he calls the police. And initially, the police investigation is not very urgent, actually. <laughs> and Nick doesn't seem that concerned. It bothered me a little bit. Um, you know, police are in his house, broken table, wife missing. And then the, uh, the, the detective, Boney, Kim Dickens, finds a little blood in the kitchen. Like, this is where part of the enhanced, like, like aesthetic of a David Fincher film comes through, because we get a we get a a husband who's not really too concerned, and, and so I'm worried here. You know, does this guy care about her? Maybe you know, you start. Are they already this early starting to poke at? Maybe he's involved because the um, the nonchalance of the police investigation is almost like yeah, he might be involved. Maybe he's a suspect. I don't know. Um, but uh, it was it was their anniversary, is that right? And that their, was the yeah, whole their fifth their fifth anniversary. Okay, all right. Which okay, yeah. So, but that the catalyst pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, he basically comes home, sees his wife, that his wife is missing, so uh, he calls the cops. In this case, the inciting incident is is not even a page long. She's missing. I mean, everything after that, that moment where it's clear that she's not in the house is like debate. From the moment that he sees that she's gone, that's the inciting incident. Talia, what do you have under debate? No, I think Chris gave a good, you know, I think that whole part afterwards where he's sort of like not really recognizing the fact that something really bad happened. We're also getting flashbacks um, to the Amazing Amy stuff. Yeah. We're getting flashbacks of Amy's parents plagiarizing her life for a book, and we get a flashback to Nick's proposal, which to me was pretty ridiculous. Of all the Superman, excuse me, Batman awesomeness that you could do, he, like, proposes to her in the middle of, like, an interview with annoying journalists. Like, that was not, like, my idea of romance. Does that have any bigger meaning... I mean, I think so. I think that the that night was really, really tough for her, right? Because it was just another example of amazing Amy accomplishing something that she failed at. Like everything, every failure of hers was a triumph for amazing Amy. And here she was, still single, and um, and then amazing Amy's getting married. So that was Nick sort of helping her, right? Because now all of a sudden she's succeeded also, but. This all goes back to ultimately. I just feel that this the movie was actually very sexist, and this is actually an example of that. Was that um, she needed to be proposed to to feel better about herself? <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
And it's, I'd buy that. I'd buy that. Yeah. That's the beginning of the sexism. Okay. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I think you know that it it really it teeters in the book, but because they just showed Nick as this. Um, super misogynistic psychopath in the book that it sort of balances a little bit but that's completely lost in the movie and it's just very to me it's very sexist you've got this but having a movie about a murderer who happens to be a woman isn't sexist on its own no of course not I think a villainous woman is awesome that's great for women's rights if you ask me the point is the motivations of why she's doing it and she's and Amy was completely motivated by men all of her motivations were from men because a man cheated on her, because a man did this. It was all because of it was all reactionary to what men did to her. And then what she was doing was, you know, a feminist's worst nightmare, lying about rape, lying about domestic violence, faking pregnancies. These are, you know, they're very loaded. They're very loaded and it's very it it, it undermines and, and diminishes these problems. Hmm. That's my little. It, fe- it feeds right into stereotypes. Is yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, where were we? We were in debate. Oh yeah, Nick proposes. But you thought the proposal was a little romantic because it made it about her, like an event that was, you know, that was not about her. It it was a, it made it a little bit about her. Yeah, and it was just showing that you know. She she really loved him because he was actually really there for her. Like she needed that at that moment, and he knew that she needed it, and she and he gave it to her. Yeah. So. Okay, Chris, break into two. Investigation begins. Does that does that work for you? They you know she we they decide she's actually missing and they start investigating. Yeah, I mean that sounds about right. Because but it's like what action does he take at that point in terms of uh, the break into two? Like he goes along with it essentially, or he he shows up at the the the, uh, the space that her parents have set up for uh, the investigations for you know the hotlines and for people to come in and volunteer their time and, and so on. I guess the issue is like I assume because we follow him for the most of the first half that he's the, the protagonist, and also I assume that because he's been yeah. Affleck and and for all intents and purposes he's more well known than Rosamund Pike. And um, so, I mean, I'm making a lot of assumptions with that. So it's like, if we're breaking into two, it's something that he has to do. Yeah, and I mean, so, he, he Nick is a protagonist in this movie. Um, actually, although, uh, you know, in the second half of the second act, or Bad Guys Close In, um, uh, Amy does take over a lot. Uh, she has her own sort of subplot um, that takes over. But for the beginning of this movie... We'll get to that. Um, Nick is the protagonist, um, and the investigation of his missing wife for me is the break in it too. The fun and games begins. We get missing person stuff. We get um, he's interviewed. He's interrogated by the police. He doesn't know certain things about his wife. Now they're starting to poke at whether um, maybe he did it or maybe he you know is involved. Um, and the, and he doesn't know who her bre- best friend is, which is interesting. Um, and this is all a really good red herring. This is good screenwriting, right? Because these are all things that makes us think, yeah, maybe, just like the police think, maybe he is involved because he doesn't know a whole heck of a lot about his wife and, and what she does all day. I think he actually takes a nice, strong break into two step when he solves the first clue. I don't know when that is time-wise, but I know that that's, 
his active step that he takes. Which which clue is that? The first the first the clue. I mean, essentially, it's just when he dis uh, when he takes an active role in the investigation. I mean, it, it, so it's, maybe it's one of those situations where there is a strong second act and there's a strong first act, but the the bridge between the two is um, not necessarily as strong as maybe we'd like it to be. Then again, I could be totally wrong. Yeah, I would say, when does the first clue come? Um, you know, we, we the, the first clue comes a little bit later uh, because... Uh, you do get um, the parents and giving their speech after his speech, and you and the parents are so like self-centered that they make the speech about them, and the mother has this prepared speech. Um, you get a little bit about Nick's father being in an assisted living home, which is not even in the plot anymore. All they did was about having having him in it for the brown house. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So Nick's assisted. Living father, I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he went walking off in on the highway and got hit by a car. We don't know what happened to Nick's senile father in this yeah. movie. <laughs> All we know is that the house is a possible location for bad things to happen. Um, and then, um, oh, and they also name the possible other suspects, Desi Collins and Tommy O'Hara. So... Then we do get to the clues. Were the clues the same in the book as they were in the movie, the way they did them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't remember specific, I don't remember them being different. Mm-hmm. I okay. think they were the same. I mean, I know the, the, the puppets were the same, and the leading to the woodshed was the same, and the diary was the same. I think it was, they were the same. Okay. Right. So... You know, these clues actually, and, 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 and the, the trail that's left, this mystery, if this were a mystery like on Law and Order, it's not very, um, it's not very um, sophisticated. This is a very straightforward mystery. Um, the clues are not too innovative, right? Um, they just happen to be, you know, the, the, the one really um, interesting mechanism that we, we find out uh, later at the midpoint is how these clues are laid down um, so intricately enough for a setup, for the frame-up, if you will. Um, and then um, well, well, the B story is supposed to kick in after fun and games. What's our B story here? I had a couple questions about this. What do you guys think it is? If there is a B story that informs the A story, crosses with it at the midpoint, and then crosses with it again in the third act, what would it be? Chris, any idea? I think it's, uh, my, my first thought is, is like what is not the, the B story, and it's like the, the extramarital affair, the lawyer, those don't, those don't serve that function. Yes. The sister, would, uh, Margo, would probably be the best. The yeah, thing. I, I was thinking about the sister, too, but... She's very passive. She doesn't do anything to to. She encourages him, but she does not incite the midpoint. This is an interesting midpoint, in, in that all it does is show us it switches the point of view and shows us what, in a sense, is really oh. going on. Yeah, but it's a yeah, it's, the, the stakes are raised enormously. Certainly, the stakes are raised enormously. But when we talk about in the collective, when we talk about a midpoint, we typically say it's like it's a, a false victory or a false defeat. 
and you know something that will be that will be dealt with by the end. Like if 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 Nick has a false victory in the, the middle, you know, the 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 last half of the second act will be kind of his downfall. Um, if it's a false defeat, it'll be how he kind of goes through a kind of a dark area and then finds out the thing he needs to find out in order to succeed in the end. And this, what it did was just switch perspectives. It showed us what was really going on. You know, in, in, in her case, in Amy's case, what was really going on. And so that, that it's like, your B story is, is then what? If you define the A story as like the investigation into Amy being gone, then, you know, the B story would be her coming back. I mean, well, she takes if, such a strong lead if, in the second the, So, so let's jump to the midpoint. The midpoint is this reveal that Amy's still alive. She's right. And the voiceover reveals she faked the murder and framed Nick because he destroyed her, he cheated on her, and she's planning to kill herself. So if we work backwards from that midpoint, could we say the, the B story is um, Amy's uh, diary narration itself? Because there's a lot of it in the fun and games. Yeah. We jump back and forth between it. I, you know, I, if you said to me that it's plausible that there is no real B story in this as we typically define it, I would certainly buy that. But I'm saying I'm saying that the B story is Rosamund Pike's story, Amy Amy Dunn's story that we start hearing about, um, because that story absolutely crosses with the midpoint. Certainly. Uh, so, well, the question would be then, what would you consider to be her bad guys closing versus say Nick's? We'll get to that. I think they both have. Uh, because then I would, then I would definitely say, like Amy's story is essentially the B story. Tanya, uh, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that if you're going to try to fit the story into the beat sheet, then that's the way to do it. I just don't know if the story actually fits perfectly. Yeah, because what what happens yeah. at the at the midpoint is we end up at the midpoint. It splits. It kind of splits into two protagonists because yes, absolutely. You have you have Nick continuing to f try to find out um, what's going on, um, but he, and, and it begins with the bad guys close in. Nick and his sister discover the ruse, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, what, what, what is the moment where they discover what's happened? The stuff in the woodshed. Right? He figures out the clue, right? And right. He, he gets ahead of her. She get he gets a couple steps ahead of Amy. Um, Amy wants to uh, screw him with the woodshed and all the purchases, but he discovers that ahead of time and he takes it to the sister. And this, he and the sister discover Amy has a ruse. So that's when the bad guys close in begin for Nick's plot. But then Amy gets her own plot at this point. All of a sudden, someone who was barely in the movie now. She's trying to disappear and stay gone, right? Um, the story starts to follow her. She has to hide in the shitty hotel, right? Um, she's watching the coverage, um, and she uh, she gets in with those 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 people who are staying at the hotel, um, and she's wondering. She's talking to that girl Nancy, um, and then they mug her, right? This is all bad guys close in for Amy's story. At the same time that Nick is having bad guys close in where 
he's got to unravel the story, hire the lawyer, uh, and, you know, interview Tommy and Desi, etc. So now we've got, like, a V where there's, you know, two A stories, or the B story is now... As something of an A story. Yeah, something of an A story. You know, this was a problem for me. This was a problem for me even in the book. I don't know why he didn't include the cops in his little treasure hunt. This gets into this heightened reality that I was talking about in this um, David Fincher American gothic tale. The, the, whole, the whole thing would unravel if he went to the cops and said, hey, guess what? I found out Amy's alive and here's all the evidence. You know, that's not what... If, if you saw this movie from the perspective of um, this movie is the fantasy of the news media when there's a murder of, of a husband, of a wife by a husband, um, that would ruin the whole fantasy. So we, we don't want to bring anything practical into the story like going to the cops with all the evidence. Um, they set up a little bit that he's afraid of the cops because they start to think he did it. But once he has the info, he feels like he needs to prove um, that she... Uh, what what she did. Um, some of the other beats in Bad Guys Closing are um, for for Nick is uh, he visits Desi and he, and he meets NPH Neil Patrick Harris and he talks to him um, and then he v visits the guy Tommy O'Hara and he finds out that Tommy was framed for his rape right. Uh, of her and 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 uh, and that Desi was totally played by him. And this actually tell you when you get to the um, what you were saying about the 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 uh, feminist nightmare or the, <laughs> the yeah. misogyny in the movie. This is where there's a little bit more than just simply making her one-dimensional angry woman because they do dis they do put out this idea that she creates men, like she finds men and then builds them. It reminded me a lot of um, of the Neil LeBute play, The Shape of Things. Has any you guys ever see that that play or that movie? No. Oh, um, wait, that's the one where she, the, the young woman gets the security guard at the museum, I want to say, and she, she re, literally rebuilds them, like through yeah. plastic surgery and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the idea that you know there, there's uh, uh, that a woman preys on certain men who are weaker because we get the sense that Nick is not in her league that that Amy is out of Nick's league and when we meet um, when we meet Desi we we feel like we automatically know he's an idiot and she's playing him so easily um, and then this other guy Tommy we find out that he. He's, he actually says it, that she created me and she built me up to be something I wasn't. And it, towards the end of this, one of, the, one of the reasons Amy decides to get back with, 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 uh, with Nick is that she feels like she's finally created a man who's, like, worthy of her. And that's the kind of psychosis she's in. So it's a little, to me, that's sophisticated. That's a little more of a sophisticated bad guy that she's, like, building her husband into the man that he, he ought to be instead of the guy who loses his job and plays video games on the couch. I mean, I think that, you know, 
the reason she goes back to him is that I, I feel that I think it's because she feels that he really understands who she really is and not who she's been pretending to be, which was the cool girl, right? Um, and now that he knows everything about the woodshed, he knows everything about Desi and Tommy and everything, that he knows who she is and also that he has embraced that he also pretends to be, he also has this sort of alter ego. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the persona that he put up in front of the media in his interview, and it's of course played up a lot more in the book. There's like several, several media appearances in the book. And, yeah. um, and he's created this, you know, alternate identity, which is what she had done, so she feels that he understands why she has done it and all that kind of stuff. Well, that and that works for the uh, the metaphor for marriage, right? Which is that intimacy. True intimacy is you know stop being polite and finding out who the people really are, who the person, your girlfriend or wife or boyfriend or husband really is, and truly, truly knowing somebody. And yes, my the, my wife is a psychopath, and yes, I'm an abusive um, sociopath, possibly capable of beating my wife um, but yeah in, in that sense it's romantic they finally get to truly know each other right it's like <laughs> oh, a that's so sweet it's a <laughs> fucked up warped like uh, uh, Fincher-esque kind of uh, romance so that works for me um, whiff of death all is lost what is, what's the all is lost here there's a bunch of bad guys close in um, Basically, the bad guy's closing is Nick is discovering the ruse, trying to prove his innocence, and Amy is trying to stay uh, gone, trying to stay hidden, but she gets mugs, loses her cash, and has to move in with Desi, and he is surprisingly easy to overcome. I had a problem with that. He was too gullible. It wasn't enough antagonism for, for Amy in her bad guy's closing. The neighbors were good antagonism. Desi was just way too easy. Um, let, me, let me jump to... To all is lost. Um, what's the low point, Talia? What do you think is the low point for Nick's story? Um, I suppose when he gets arrested, right? See, the odd thing is that it doesn't really feel like his stakes really raise that much after the midpoint. I feel like the story is hers after that. Totally, yeah. Well, yeah. she definitely her her all is lost is when I mean, I mean she loses her money. Um, She's with Desi. And she's with Desi, and then but the problem is she finds out that Desi was recording everything, um, and so she needs a new plan. Her plan was just to escape, and Desi provide you know is a problem in that he wants to like live a life and whatever, and so he's got to disappear. So the murder of Desi is a great whiff of death. I I want to I want to make one um, uh, cinematic. Uh, tribute. I thought that um, Fincher's uh, depiction of the murder scene was beautifully done. Yeah. And to me, it was it was one hundred percent praying mantis murdering the their mate, right? The female praying mantis having sex with the mate, then cutting off his head right at the climax. It was like and like turning completely anim anim animalistic in the middle of uh, uh yeah it's like the, the 
Yeah, like praying mantis, like the Black Widow. She was like the vixen who's literally going to have sex with you and then slit your throat at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so it's so like uh, cinematically bloody and sexy at the same time. I thought that was fantastic. I agree with you. I thought it was excellent. Chris, uh, praying mantis murder scene. You know, praying mantis. Um, a uh, female praying mantis cuts off the head of her prey uh, after having sex with him. That's what I thought. Um, so then, you know, for Amy, the, the all is lost is a little bit like she loses all her money and she has to create a new plan. For Nick, it's the fact that they find out, for me, the, the closest thing to all is lost is the fact that they find out that he cheated. Right, because that really screws with his image of being the innocent man. Right, and his goal is to, with the lawyer, is to get out ahead of it. But then his um, mistress beats them to the punch in the media. That's the all is lost for me, because now he's not, he's lost his like um, good go good good guy image. Um, okay, but for Amy, I think it is when actually she's she's imprisoned. By Desi, right? Oh, you're right. You're yeah. right. She's actually like you know kidnapped and confined. And um and in the and, and in the book it takes it takes a while for her to manipulate a situation in which she could escape. Mm -hmm. It's not so it's not so easy as um as in the movie, which is what you were saying, which I agree was too easy. Yeah. Um. But they do set up that Desi was stalker-ish. They do, they do set, her, set it up so he's stalker-ish. And, you know, it does work. If you think backwards from the point where she decides, you know, she was kidnapped by this stalker-type guy and she had to kill him, everything does fit, you know, her story. Although, um, this is, I guess this is where we get into the break into three. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um... There's not a lot of... I was trying to find Dark Knight of the Soul afterwards. I mean... Well, you have to have a soul to have a Dark Knight of the Soul. <laughs> <laughs> um, the closest thing I could find was when... Because they, they hold off on the interview. They don't show the interview. Um, in the movie, they, say, they show us... They show Ben Affleck or, or go into the interview, but we don't see that what is said in it, and so they hold off for a few more scenes. Um, um, that, And then the interview itself is kind of Dark Knight of the Soul because Nick um, admits to being a bad husband, and it's almost sincere because he's being truthful. He admits to all the bad things he did when he was a husband. He didn't understand his wife. Um, right. And that's why he cheated, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of Dark Knight of the Soul material, um, where he's looking for, um, uh, you know, who he is, and it does sort of set up new information to break into the third act. Now we have a weird third act, because it's very passive, because yeah. the murder mystery is over. The only question is, will Amy's ruse be revealed, or how quickly will it be revealed? Or will she get to kill Ben before... Because I'm waiting for her to kill Ben. Half of me doesn't realize that this is like a heightened 
sort of universe fantasy going on here. I'm just like, you know, waiting for her to go total like psychopath on her. But then, you know, Amy gives her story to the cops and the detective presses her on the story, right? He's yeah, I thought that was good. Poke holes in it, right? But for the most part, because she's America's sweetheart, they don't want to uh, allow her to bring facts in, you know, to ruin the fantasy, the fantasy that she's home, safe, and the the, the news media can report it. Like I bought it, I bought into this this fantasy, explaining all the sort of logic holes of this third act. That that scene that you're talking about, oh my god, that scene annoyed me so much. Tell she's, me why. She's sitting in a room full of FBI agents. All of them are men, right? And then there's that one detective. And all of the men are, are listening to her bullshit, and they just can't see through it as if she's bewitching them, literally. And yeah. the only one who's immune to her you know, magic is the one woman in the room. Well, I remember, I remember Ben, ben asked her, uh, the detective's partner as well. It's like the, the detective in the room is the only one. And then Ben, or Nick, is, is also saying it. And he says it to the, to the detective's partner. He's like, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. And the, the partner says, just be happy that she's home. Right. And don't worry about the details. The story's, you know, the story's played out the way it should. You know, there's the happy ending. You got what everybody wants. We got what we wanted. Right. So just shut up and go with it. That's really important because the rest of the, the next set of events are completely unbelievable. That she impregnates herself with the, the sperm from the sperm donor place. Mm-hmm. Nick slams her against the wall. He decides to stay with a psychopath because of the child. And then the sister, who's the only level headed one, you know, in the whole movie decides to support him because they were twins, and she's like, I'm always with you. And so this would never work at all in a regular, you know, episode of Law and Order. But in this heightened world, I want to believe in this Fincher-esque world, there, there's a bigger point to this, that like Chris was saying, that the fantasy that the news media wanted allows the detectives to believe what they want to believe. And the sins of the marriage and, 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 and Ben actually realizing how sinful he was and getting to know his wife um, are a big enough excuse for Nick to stay in the marriage. It's a big enough, you know, it's, it's, it's complete disaster on both sides. The news media fools everybody who needs to be fooled. But the truth is so real and harsh about their marriage that Nick is okay with it remaining a secret and going back to his wife to maybe work it out. I mean, it's kind of a mind fuck. I'm not sure if that's... I mean, I have a hard time with the ending, right? Um, I don't know really why he refuses to stay with her, but I think a part of it has to do with the fact of what she says when she says that... Um, who you were when you were with me is the best you've ever been, right? And I think that, I think that's ultimately why he stays, because it's true. Because when he was actually being himself, he was, you know, useless. (laughs) Nobody likes who he really is. He, he's only... Right, she was out of his league, and, 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 you know, she upped his game, and then she actually, you know, making him run for his life actually turned him into an active you know, man, like, 
And yeah. and this goes back to the idea that she, you know, her psychopathy or her sociopathy is all about building men up, finding men who are weak and, you know, sculpting them a la the shape of things or something. And then the child thing, I forget. Did Ben want, did, did Nick want the child or did she want the child? I think he wanted the child and she didn't want the child. Did anything work for you, Talia, about the ending? Did you like, um, in, the, in the movie? I mean, I, the problem was because that they didn't build him up to be as much of a psychopath as he was in the book. The ending just felt even more bizarre. I mean, it felt bizarre in the book, too. But it felt even more bizarre here. I don't know why. He was it was it ending different in the book? What was different about? No, the book? it was the same. The ending was the same in the book, but because the character was built out differently, Nick was yeah. built out differently. That he was so much more of a psychopath. It was kind of believable that he would stay because public image of him was more important than what he wanted for himself. That was more important. See, that's brilliant. I mean, that that is that is kind of what I was describing, which is that these two people were faking who they were in their marriage until this trauma of that she decides to invoke in you know on their marriage and then through the trauma they get to know who they both really are and they both happen to be psychopaths and they they they're able to pull the 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 wool over the eyes of the you know America and the media and then return to their marriage knowing each other intimately romantically as some hugely fucked up individuals, which is a metaphor for marriage. That works better. <laughs> so I hear. I, I I'm still I'm single right now. <laughs> I mean, I hope this is not it's, a metaphor for marriage. It's okay, man. You'll find somebody. You'll find somebody. Aren't you looking forward to it now? <laughs> yeah. Wait. I can't wait. Um. But so. The third act is really interesting because it's kind of passive. It's you know, Amy asks him to play along. He pulls the wool over the eyes of the detectives. And there's this really ridiculous moment where both the lawyer leaves Nick and he says, well, you don't need me anymore. And then the next scene, the investigator leaves Nick and she's like, well, I'm out of it. And it, you know, again, if we don't have some interesting heightened reality of a Fincher-esque world, with a big old metaphor going, this is like ridiculously too convenient. Um, well, well, I thought those I thought those bits were actually realistic. Like, you know, hey, you're the kid, you don't need me anymore because the police aren't investigating you. You're not, you know, you're not suing anybody. So see you later. And then the cop, you know, it's like mystery solved. We, she's not dead. There's nothing else to investigate. I'm out of it. I mean, yeah, but if this is not an American dream state, if this is not uh, an American Gothic fantasy world, this is ridiculous logic. Where you know that none of this would actually happen without what Talia is describing from the book, without Nick himself being like another psychopath slash sociopath kind of guy. Um, yeah, because right now in the movie, you've got him telling the detective and the lawyer, please help me, she's crazy, she's a psychopath. And they're like, no, 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 we got to go on our way. And he's like, all right, fine, I might as well live with her. Seems like a normal guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what? Wait, no, but see, that, that also is the problem with the logic is, why, why, would a, why would a guy who is kind of a pussy go and decide to stay locked, you know, in a house with a murderer, someone he knows is capable of murderer. 
You, you know, Ben's got to lock his door every well, night. Well, you just said the guy is a pussy. I'm just. I mean, not, I'm. I'm saying he's. He. 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 He's. He would be scared of her unless he was really, um, you know, wife beater type, a real like psychopathic. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that's. I feel that's missing. I feel that was lost, as as Talia has explained, lost in the translation here. And then you know, actually, the closing image makes a lot more sense that way when, uh, back to this metaphor of the marriage, looking at her brain, thinking. What are you thinking? What have we done to each other? What will we do? It's a lot more balanced that way. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What do you guys think? You know, final thoughts on the ending of the film. Well, I think I'm going to sum it up the way my husband did. So right when the movie ended, he did not read the book. The credits roll up. He turns to me and he says, "Bitches be crazy." <laughs> that's the takeaway. <laughs> well, that's the problem you had with it is that exactly. it it portrayed her as a, a you know a crazy woman, not yeah. It was imba imbalanced. Yeah, right. Yeah. The I, I wonder how much of that has to do. The imbalance has to do with the fact that it's Ben Affleck, and we see he's when we see him on screen. Well, because it's like it's one of those situations where. You know, sometimes you see an actor, like take, take Tom Cruise, for instance, where it's hard to see the character past Tom Cruise. Right, he's a star. Because, he's not an actor, he's a star, and so we right, can't and, and, seeing him but a good guy. Right, and so it's like, I wonder if like a lesser-known actor or a no-name actor who had played the part of Nick Dunn, would we come away saying the same thing? I, I kind of think we would. Yeah, but, I mean, that's, that, um, that, that's a casting problem in general in Hollywood. That's another reason, you know, I'm having a problem with Batfleck. You know, how can he be the Dark Knight? He's kind of a nice guy. He's kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the Boston kid from Goodwill Hunting, or he's like the, uh, the uh, romantic comedy charming guy. You know, he's not a, he's not a Dark Hero with, you know, deep. He doesn't brood as well as you'd like him to. No way. I mean, his his smile is too bright and flashy. Chris, what was your final thoughts on the ending? I mean, I liked it. I came away from the movie. I felt like I hadn't wasted my money. Uh, bearing in mind, the last movie I saw was Sin City 2. <laughs> so you know, take it with that. Um, so I think I think you know you're right. It felt like a resolution. Um, it yeah. felt like it came full circle, but it it didn't it didn't slam me in the face. It wasn't like the end of Fight Club or anything, or the end of Seven, which you know Fincher has you know set an impossible bar for himself to reach again. You know, I wish I saw Nick really fall in love with Amy. Like I wish, I mean, it wasn't just a bunch of vignette scenes of them falling in love where we assume they fall in love. I wish that we really saw them fall in love, so that if if they, we saw them fall in love for real, and why that they, they need each other. But I, you know, then if he takes her back in the end, it's like, well, because the shell of the woman I fell in love with is there, but she's also made me a better man. I don't know. But she was never who she. The whole part when he was falling in love with her, the diary entries, she wasn't really being herself, right? She was pretending right. to be somebody. Right. So who he actually fell in love with doesn't exist. But the thing is, who she really fell in love with doesn't exist either. Yeah. And you know? that's, why it's, that's why it's flat without him being more of a... This should have gone... This should have, they should have t entitled this Double American Psycho. Like yeah. American Psycho meets his wife, right? Where they're both 
um, you know, psychopaths. They're both hiding things from the cops, and they both have ruses. And then by the end of it, they both come together, and they're like, aren't you a crazy motherfucker, and aren't you a crazy bitch? But we are beautiful together. That would have been a bigger, badder ending. And you would, and we would be like, holy cow, there's probably couples like this out there in America. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why the book worked better than the movie, because it was closer to that. Was there anything different in the script? I know, Talia, you reviewed the script recently at The Collective. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie just did a better job pulling off some of the things that the script tried to do. I don't know what draft that was, but, yeah. um, you know, certain things in terms of, like, after the reveal, the third act of the script, it just felt like it just went on and on and on, you know? It was, like, two weeks later, then three weeks later, then, you know, a month later, and it's like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, it needs to be over. But it didn't feel like it dragged that much in the movie, so they mm -hmm. did a better job in pacing and movement. Um, some of the voiceovers were different, but okay. very close. Anything missing that, you know, notably, or it was mostly the same? No, it's mostly the same. I think the, the movie is a definite improvement on the script, the draft that I read, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Gillian Flynn wrote the novel and the screenplay, and in the history of authors writing their own screenplays, it's an abysmal history. She mm -hmm. did a pretty good job. Most authors cannot cannot adapt their own work. It's a failure almost every time. So no, she's, amazing. she's amazing. I think we're going to see a lot of her in the future. I think she's a really yeah. good writer. And this is the first screenplay she ever wrote. Yeah, bravo on your first script. <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah. Um, what else? Just let's sum up uh, for the podcast, sum up the movie, your thoughts, things you liked, didn't like. Uh, I'll start with Chris. Things I liked and didn't like? Your summation of the uh, movie. I mean, I, like I said, I enjoyed it. I didn't think I wasted my money. I had a good time watching it. Um, as someone who hasn't read the book, um, I kind of knew some of the spoilers. It was still a really great ride. Talia, what did you what did you uh, make of the last of of the film, just in general? Well, I mean, I I thought that. It was very clever. It was really witty. They were very, both of them were very interesting characters. I really appreciated the alternate story structure. I feel like there was a bit of a protagonist shift at the midpoint, and I think it predominantly worked. And um, I think normally you sit in a movie, and as a screenwriter, you kind of know what's going to happen, right? You know what's going to happen 20 minutes in. And this was pretty unpredictable, which is always refreshing. Yeah. I really think it was great as far as that's concerned. What I didn't like was the takeaway that is bitches be crazy. <laughs> I could have done without that. <laughs> you know what? And that in in the the way you describe the book being a lot more even totally eliminates that, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it's you know guys and girls are crazy in this in a marriage. It drive marriage drives men and women crazy. So um, I think you made a great point there. Um, my takeaway is, you know, I thought this was a little bit of David Fincher light. It wasn't as dark as some of his other stuff. I wish he'd brought a little bit more darkness to it. Um, it was a pretty good thriller. The, the, mid, the midpoint reveal was great. I didn't see it coming. Mm. Um, I didn't think the performances were particularly um, 
well-resolved. You know, that's part of the writing part, you know, not the actor's pro- problem, it's more the writing, because, they, you know, Amy had this crazy place to resolve with the, with the murder, right, which was mm-hmm. great. Um, but then, because Nick didn't resolve in a really meaningful way, it didn't bring up, when they finally get back together... You know, I'm just like I don't believe it. I'm sorry. You know, I wanted to I wanted to believe in this American Gothic sort of fantasy that he was building, um, and you know, I, I I believed it a little bit. Um, the murder scene uh, was one of my favorites. Um, mm-hmm. I I thought the um, the way they played the uh, good screenwriting technique where they held off the interview. Um, Till later on, even though they introduced the plot point a lot earlier in the bad guys closing, that was a great choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they should have left out the cheating altogether. We didn't need to know he was cheating. It would have been a bigger reveal to us if the mistress came out when before Nick was going to go on trial or go on the interview, and then. You know, all of a sudden, we might think he was more of the bad guy. The way the news media and, and people watching would think he was the bad guy. So I thought there was no reason to um, let us in on uh, all that stuff with the with the mistress and having sex with her in the sister's house. It didn't add to it. I thought um, we could have left with that. But all in all, um, you know, I thought Gone Girl was, you know, one of the more original films of the year, which isn't a very high bar, but I always loved Fincher cinematically. Visually, it was interesting. Um, the murder scene, again, praying mantis shit. That was hot. I love it. It was amazing. Yeah. I think that's that's it for Gone Girl um, Beat Sheet Edition. I want to thank Chris and Talia for coming thank on. Thank you. You can email us, fan mail, hate mail, comments, questions at scriptfeed at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook page, our Google Plus page, by searching for NYC Screenwriters Collective. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at scriptfeed. If you live in New York City, please join us at one of our workshops at the NYC Screenwriters Collective. You can also find our organization at screenwriterscollective.org. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. 